Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Apologies for this episode taking so long, I'm still getting used to my new position and the workload that comes with it. This episode might sound a little different as well, as I'm using new equipment, but hopefully it will be an improvement. Anyway, this episode, as the title suggests, is all about my main gal, Brunhild. We're going to cover the years of Childebert's ascendancy and the beginning of the rule of his sons, all under the watchful eye of the Queen Mother. We'll discuss how she approached governing and diplomacy, and the controversy around her legacy as Queen, in episode 73, Living in Brunhild's World. We've discussed before the Roman elite's aversion to powerful women, especially stepmothers. The most famous example of this is probably the Livia did it theory, where the wife of Rome's first emperor is basically blamed for every single death, every single plot, basically everything that went wrong in the period. Brunhild gets a bit of the Livia treatment, this odd kind of universalizing theory of societal wrong, based on a single woman. According to chroniclers like Fredegar, and her political opponents as well, basically everything that went wrong in the Frankish kingdoms from the time of her marriage to Sigebert in 567 to her death in 613 was due to her nefarious schemes. There really is little subtlety in this depiction. Even when Gregory was writing about his least favourite queen, Fredegund, he included some sympathetic passages, and generally made her seem like a three-dimensional figure, though his motivations for doing this were complicated. But there is very little subtlety in Fredegar. He straight up calls Brunhild a Jezebel, and insinuates that she might actually have been the devil. Since this is from our major source, we obviously have a bit of a task in untangling Brunhild's later years. It has been suggested that part of the reason why she was attacked so viciously is because of her policies. This is another trend that has strong examples from Roman times, so let's start there. There is a growing academic consensus that some of the Roman emperors that were traditionally considered evil and tyrannical have been somewhat unfairly judged. This does not go for all unpopular emperors, some, like Caligula or Elagabalus, which is straight up insane, but others, who get a variety of harsh depictions from our surviving Roman sources, were possibly simply unpopular with the elites who wrote the histories. This is a pretty simple equation. Some emperors, like Domitian or Hadrian, undertook reforms and policies that sidelined the Senate and or increase their own power. One can argue as to the necessity or effectiveness of these reforms, but the one thing they definitely did was piss off the senatorial class, and possibly even other elites like the equestrians. And you know who writes all of the histories? The elites. Historically, this is actually quite common. If you want to get a glowing depiction in the historical record, you need to please the elites. If you want to be vilified for centuries, go ahead and push through those controversial but arguably necessary reforms. This is where we get to Brunhild, 
As Edward James notes, she has traditionally been seen as a Romanizer. This meant two things in the Merovingian period. One, she gave important and high-ranking positions to Gallo-Romans. We've talked before about how the clear ethnic divisions of Clovis's day started to blur over time, but they definitely still existed in this period. Brunhild was seen as hostile to the Frankish nobility due to her habit of appointing Gallo-Romans, though, in her defence, Gallo-Romans were likely on the whole more educated than their Frankish counterparts, which is useful if you're appointing them to government positions. Though, this old gap was slowly closing. On the other hand, the nobles did have a point. Brunhild was probably employing these men because they would be personally loyal to her and not wrapped up in the politics of the Frankish nobles. Sidelining the nobles in favour of her own men is a classic power grab. Brunhild also kept conspicuously friendly relations with the mostly Gallo-Roman bishops, Gregory being a prominent but far from the only example. We've talked extensively about the power struggles in local areas between the previously dominant bishops and the rising Frankish aristocracy who wanted to control their wealthy cities. This was no doubt a factor in Brunhild's sour reputation as well. The second meaning of the term Romanizer is one of policy. Brunhild employed these Gallo-Romans to embark upon a series of centralizing reforms, especially around taxation. While early Merovingian kings were violent autocrats, they governed with a light touch when it came to administration. This left local nobles the ability to govern largely free from oversight, something they had become rather fond of. Since the last government to attempt to impose central control in these areas was the Roman imperial state, any reforms aimed at strengthening central authority were seen as inherently Roman. Fredegar singles out one of Brunhild's officials, Protadius. According to Fredegar, he was, quote, monstrously cruel, extorting the last penny for the fisc, and with ingenuity both filling the fisc and enriching himself at the expense of others, end quote. The fisc is an important term. It is traditionally the name for the treasury, in this case, the personal wealth and holdings of the king. Now, before we dive into the debate here, we need to mark another common theme. No one likes the taxman, and if you're sick of being taxed by a particularly efficient and judicious official, one of the easiest and most obvious ways to slander them is to accuse them of being corrupt. I'm not saying Protadius wasn't corrupt. Most tax officials in the era were probably skimming a little off the top for themselves. But I am saying that if you put his critics in his place, they'd probably be corrupt themselves. Now, putting that aside, there are several interesting things about this statement. First is the matter of perspective. On the one hand, the image of a cruel, heartless royal official needlessly taking the wealth from the innocent citizens is powerful and evokes tales of Robin Hood in one's mind. On the other hand, a tax official gathering taxation efficiently for the fisc 
is literally just a man doing his job well. And this does stink of elites whining about having to give away some of their massive hordes of wealth. No one likes paying taxes, they didn't then, we don't now, but taxes are necessary for society to function. The second interesting thing is the centering of Protadius. Fredegar claims that he was Brunhild's lover because, of course he does, get ready for that to also become a common theme. But he still uses Protadius as a foil. This is an interesting literary technique that we see with Gregory's depiction of Fredegund as well. These authors dislike these women and wish to show them in a bad light. But they also generally dislike public displays of women in power. So they have to walk this odd tightrope in their texts. On one page, they'll talk about how Brunhild or Fredegund were basically running everything, even dictating to powerful kings and nobles. But this image also makes them look powerful and effective. That is too far, so male foils for their nefarious plans must be created. Protadius fills this role here. Fredegar clearly wants to blame Brunhild for heavy taxation, but to directly blame her for this might make her look capable, something he can't abide. So he blames her for appointing this official, and then blames the official for the action. Not to get too technical, but this actually has a term in gender history, the public-private paradigm. The idea is that conservative authors like Gregory or Fredegar believe women should remain behind closed doors in the private spaces of the household or the convent. This is the side of the paradigm built for them. When they step into the masculine side of the public sphere, in this case into politics, they transgress the expectations of these conservative men and thus draw their criticism. So the authors are placed in a bind. To admit that these women function effectively in the masculine public sphere is to break their own concept of social norms. To leave them entirely in the private sphere will confuse readers as to why they were so evil. Anyway, enough of gender theory. The result is basically this weird hybrid depiction where these women operate from the shadows clearly affecting change in the public sphere, but being kept out of the spotlight, more or less, and being painted as behind-the-scenes schemers. There is a lot of complexity, but I think that's enough for us today. But do keep in mind the examples I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, and what Gregory has told us about Fredegund already. Women who become too powerful often get painted the same way in histories, as murdering, plotting, evil, etc., etc. From Livia to Cleopatra to Brunhild, this is not a coincidence. It is a result of this paradigm and authors reacting to it. Now, back to Brunhild and government. So far, I've been pretty even-handed and offering a rather sympathetic view of Brunhild. You might be thinking, man, this guy really loves this old Frankish queen. And... That's fair, I absolutely do, but in the interests of accuracy, let's talk about some of the more distasteful examples of Brunhild's governing style. Obviously, 
governing in the Merovingian period was a harsh and messy business. It didn't matter who you were, you were probably going to get some blood on your hands. Brunhild was far from the exception to this rule. We've talked already about her likely involvement in the purges of Childebert's court, which were usually triggered by rebellions of varying levels of seriousness. Men like Ursio and Berthrafried had previously threatened Brunhild during her weak years after the death of Sigebert. Their deaths mark not only a strengthening of her power in the Austrasian court, but possibly revenge as well. We must also remind ourselves of the suspicious nature of Chilperic's death. We can't be sure the man who stabbed Chilperic definitely worked for Brunhild, but she and her son definitely benefited, and it seems likely that she was probably involved. We've also talked a bit about Brunhild's contact with the Gallo-Roman clergy, which is often presented as largely positive and part of her Romanizing influence. The fact that she had the apparent backing of the Pope is often seen as definitive. He was the Pope after all. But details undermine this picture, and it quickly becomes clear that Brunhild was more than capable of removing hostile elements from the clergy, just like she did amongst the nobility. The key examples here are Desiderius, who was killed on his way to exile, and Columbanus, whose hagiography appears in full in Fredegar and paints a very negative picture of Brunhild. James argues that these men are exceptions, that they attacked her at her most vulnerable points in her life. But often the exceptions prove the rule, and the willingness to remove and punish powerful religious figures begs the question, were the other bishops really supportive of Brunhild? Or was there an element of fear? We'll talk more about this when we discuss the life of Columbanus in a future episode. But enough is enough. Let's talk about the two large elephants in this room. First, Brunhild had a strong aversion to her son and especially her grandsons getting wives. To put it simply, Brunhild seemed terrified that her son's wives would replace her in court. She was the queen mother, and she seems to have thought that a new queen might undermine her legitimacy at court. This is not an entirely unreasonable fear. We know that there were plenty of people, like Gregory, who believed widows should withdraw from public life. Brunhild's public political power was already controversial. Extending it on and on through the generations was even more so. We can see this escalate over the years. Childebert's wife, Ferluba, and Brunhild seem to have gotten on just fine. We have no evidence of any real tension, and in the conspiracy of Septimima, we see that Ferluba was apparently associated with Brunhild by the conspirators. Like her husband, Feluba seems to have been content with Brunhild's powerful position in court. The trouble really began with the next generation. After Childebert's untimely death, Brunhild became regent for both of his underage sons. She was at the peak of her power in this period, 
dominating the Austrasian and Burgundian courts. When the two boys came of age, though, the issues arose. Theudebert was the elder, and he inherited Austrasia. He and his nobles eventually forced Brunhild into exile from the kingdom, at which point she fled to his brother Theuderic's court in Burgundy. One of the fascinating wrinkles in this story is that Theudebert's wife and the new queen of Austrasia had once been Brunhild's slave. The queen mother herself apparently purchased this woman from the slave market. After Brunhild's exile and during the conflicts between the two brothers, the new and old queens wrote each other sharp, insulting letters that survive to this day. In these letters, the new queen gives voice to Brunhild's worst fears, insulting the old queen by claiming that she has surpassed her former mistress and that the old woman is now her inferior. Now, it is possible that this was all a plot gone wrong. It is at least possible that Brunhild was behind the marriage and was hoping that it would give her more control over Theudebert. If this was the case, it obviously backfired, and when she reached Burgundy, she was determined to not make the same mistake again. She apparently encouraged Theuderic to maintain mistresses, but not wives. This would eventually help lead to her downfall, however, as Theuderic had multiple sons, but all to mistresses. This allowed Brunhild's opponents to claim these sons were illegitimate, a rather new concept in Merovingian history. Nevertheless, when Theuderic died young and she tried to crown one of his sons, this gave her opponents an opening, where the nobles sided with Fredegund's son, Clothar II, instead of Brunhild's new, illegitimate king, leading to her death and the end of her line. It is possible that if she had simply allowed Theuderic to father legitimate children, she might have been able to hold the realm together after his death, though we will discuss this further in later episodes. But finally, to the second elephant, arguably the biggest. After her exile from the court of Austrasia, Brunhild sided with Theuderic. During her time in his Burgundian court, she apparently encouraged him to fight his older brother, which he did in a series of confrontations that eventually led to Theudebert's defeat. After this, Theuderic seized Austrasia for himself. Theudebert was sent to a monastery with his son Merovec, where both were killed, ending their threats to the realm permanently. The instigator behind all of the exile and murders in the monastery was apparently Brunhild. Now, we know the biases against Brunhild in our sources, but she does seem to be a prime suspect in this case. Her motivations, be they cold practical considerations or hot revenge at her treatment, can be debated endlessly. But there is no way to spin it. If she was indeed responsible, then turning her grandsons against one another and then murdering one of them for her own power is one of the most horrendous acts in the whole Merovingian period. 
not quite to Clothar level, but getting a little too close for comfort. In the end, Brunhild both was and is a deeply controversial character. There are a complex series of lenses, interpretations, and biases that we have to navigate to even attempt to talk about her in a balanced manner. And even then, we are obviously limited by what our source material covers. Still, as the most important figure at the time, she must be discussed. As I think we've seen through our discussion in this episode, this was clearly Brunhild's world. Everyone else was just living in it. Next time, we'll dive back into our sources. Now that we have the broad strokes of the period in place, we can get into Fredegar and see what he has to say. Should be fun. Fredegar usually is. See you then.